For Vermont Public, I'm Lexi Krupp. A heads up, this story contains descriptions of racial violence and racial slurs. Take care while listening. All right, so I'm going to share my screen and we shall get ourselves started. Last winter, the Norwich Historical Society held a local trivia night, a program called All About Norwich, Your Questions Answered. We're going to ask some true-false questions and play a little, few little games, but we'll go ahead and answer as many questions as we can that you all submitted to us. That's Sarah Rucker talking. She's the director of the Historical Society. She went through questions like how the town of Norwich got its name and what old log drives used to look like. It was all very jolly. Then came this moment at the end of the event. Do we have any other questions? Anything anyone wants to share or say in our last few minutes? It was very fun answering all these questions. There was a question that hadn't been answered. It actually came from my old neighbor, Claudia Marib. She wrote in the Zoom chat, and Sarah read her message out loud. I had submitting a question. Oh, you asked a question about Beaver Meadow, Claudia. And the question about Beaver Meadow is one about a, a corner at Mitchell Brook Bridge that has been known and appears on maps and deeds as Darkey Corner. Sarah gave a brief explanation of where the name Darkey Corner might have come from. It's a terrible story. There was a minister who lived in Beaver Meadow at the corner there in the mid-1880s. And he was harassed and abused by local young men in Beaver Meadow, and he was eventually murdered. This minister was named John Harrison. According to town records, he was one of the only Black men living in Norwich at the time. So, um, yep, Darkey Bridge. It's also known as Darkey Corner. It also is known as N Corner and N Bridge. So it's a pretty racist, there's some pretty racist pieces. That same night, Claudia emailed me. At the time, I was living next door to her, on Dirt Road, about a two-minute walk away. She forwarded me an old newspaper clipping about John Harrison's alleged murder that Sarah had sent her after the event. It's from the St. Albans Messenger in January of 1896. Here's Claudia reading from the beginning. Harrison, the Negro preacher, lived in a little one-story shanty which sat in a fork of the road about a mile from Beaver Meadow on the road to Sharon. The trout brook controlled by the Lake Mitchell Trout Club runs within a stone's throw of the house. I started reading the article, then stopped. It was violent, and I wanted to wait until daytime. Because this description of where John Harrison had lived, it was where I was living where two dirt roads come together next to a stream in West Norwich. The stream is loud. It sounds like it's raining whenever you step outside. And I felt confident this was the same place John Harrison lived, because there was a reason Claudia had been asking about the name Darkey Bridge. It was written on her deed, describing where her property line ends and mine began. Obviously, I thought of that as a racist term, and I wondered why. The word darky is a slur, mostly used in the late 18 and early 1900s. And for Claudia, it really stuck out. Like, what was the story here? 
with African Americans, or was there racism here, or what was the history? And I would bring it up with different people, but there wasn't a whole lot of information. Uh, and so when the Historical Society asked residents for questions, I asked that question. She had no idea. Her question would lead to the story of a preacher, a young man who moved to Norwich just a few years before he was killed. Neither did any of the neighbors she talked about this with, including me. After that night, I wanted to learn more about John Harrison's life and the people responsible for his death. But when I started looking into it, there was no gravesite or death certificate, nothing in a Google search or in academic literature about what happened. And not having that record felt like a big omission, especially in Vermont, where so much of our history has been kept and remembered. Because however ugly it is, what happened to John Harrison played a part in shaping this community today, and who was permitted to live here and who wasn't. But what happened had not been entirely forgotten. There were rumors, decades ago, of something horrible that happened here. In my mind, I had this image of a man being burned in his own home. Jane Keller first moved to the area in the 1970s. I met her at an old chapel about a mile from where John Harrison lived, built a few decades after his death. Early on when I first came here, I heard a story of a man who was killed there, a black man who, um, his house was burned and maybe he was in it. I didn't know, but it was a vague, rumored story. And it um, felt bad because it's such a beautiful place. I love, I love it here. And it never really came up, just more in the back of my mind. I always hoped it wasn't true. Jane never learned anything more, and it sort of faded away until that event last year with the Norwich Historical Society. It's hard to verify details about John Harrison's life. But newspaper articles say he was a young man when he moved to the area, around 25. His father had been enslaved, and both his parents died when he was young. He was raised in upstate New York by a, quote, Christian family. If it's called a Christian family, this is almost certainly a euphemism for a white family. Professor John Salant studies Black religion in early America at Western Michigan University. He was basically adopted into a white family and then reared by them and then probably in like mid-adolescence he started doing local work for his upkeep. John has written extensively about a black minister who lived in Rutland in the late 1700s and led a congregation there for decades. He had never heard of John Harrison, but he agreed to read through some of the old newspaper articles I sent him to provide some context.
When John Harrison moves to Vermont, it's the 1880s. Reconstruction in the former Confederate states has ended. Jim Crow laws and racial segregation are the norm. Thousands of Black people are targeted by racial violence, leading to mass migration north and west. In Vermont, there were just over a thousand Black people in the whole state, according to the 1880 census. Most Black men worked as farmhands, laborers, or barbers around this time. Some had their own farms, but there weren't many other options for work if you were Black. Most banks wouldn't loan you money for a business. You couldn't get a job as a carpenter or teacher. And factories and railroads wouldn't hire you. As a young man, John Harrison decided to become a preacher. And he probably picked up other work to get by. According to one newspaper article, he didn't know how to read or write. But he likely grew up listening to people read from the Bible. My guess is he probably has like a repertoire of a couple of dozen Bible stories. And he can pull on those and preach as needed. And John Salen says moving to a place like West Norwich made a certain amount of sense. For decades, a lot of people had been leaving Vermont, heading west. Many established parishes had disbanded. And being a minister in rural northern New England wasn't exactly a coveted job. So then this creates opportunities for people like John Harrison. Essentially, he would have been an itinerant minister traveling around and maybe preaching to people who hadn't heard a sermon for a long time. People are kind of hungry for sermons. And so someone who can fill that void is going to be welcomed here and there. In early 1886, John Harrison's name started showing up in newspaper notices all over the region, advertising where he's preaching. At the Village Hall in Taftsville, a schoolhouse in Orange, a Baptist church in Hardwick, an outdoor meeting in West Groton. Here he is in January in Walden. In 1887. Yep, North Walden, to a fair audience. So he was getting good-sized audiences. Sarah Rooker from the Norwich Historical Society found a bunch of these articles to show me. And John Harrison wasn't the only Black preacher in Vermont around this time. In the mid-1800s, a man named Charles Bowles traveled the state by horseback, preaching in different towns. He bought land in Huntington and gained a large following there. And there were certainly others like him. But many of these stories haven't been written down. The records are hard to find unless you know what you're looking for. In John Harrison's case, besides newspaper clippings, he also shows up in the grand lists of the town of Norwich. They're these marble-bound books written in beautiful cursive, listing every household in town, how much land they owned, and if they paid a poll tax. John Harrison did not own property. The land where he lived belonged to an old farmer, according to deed records. But he did pay taxes in 1888 and 1889. Then he disappears. (laughs) 
About two miles away from John Harrison's house, on a small farm in Sharon, lived brothers named William and Albert Eastman. Both were in their early 20s. And they seemed to have a lot of relatives living nearby. At least three other families with the same last name lived in the area, according to maps from the mid-1800s. And the brothers liked to go fishing. One of their regular spots took them right past John Harrison's house. They'd talk and sometimes harass him. In 1895, about five years after John Harrison disappeared, William Eastman got into trouble. He was caught breaking into someone's home and stealing cider. The postmaster of West Norwich testified against him in a criminal case. And a couple months later, William decided to get revenge. He had a fight at the post office, and the postmaster shot him, he claimed, in self-defense. And this is when John Harrison's name again appears in the newspaper. Claudia Marib, my old neighbor, read the account from the St. Albans Messenger. The bullet lodged in the groin, and for a time it was thought that he would die. It was during this period, according to the rumor, that Eastman, supposing himself on his deathbed, is said to have made a confession to the attending physician to the effect that he and three others murdered the Negro and then buried the body in the cellar of his house. Again, this next part is described as a rumor, printed several years after John Harrison disappeared, and William Eastman's doctor denied hearing any confession. Still, the story goes on in graphic detail. Claudia reads what's alleged to have happened in the fall of 1890. And a heads up, the language in this article is jarring and violent. One day, perhaps two weeks before Harrison disappeared, the two Eastman boys made Harrison a call and left him for dead. The boys had pounded the Negro on the head with an iron kettle until the bale broken and left a big ridge across his forehead. The boys then went up the village and told what they had done, and it is said that they afterward boasted that they would finish him yet. The neighbors went to the Negro's home and found him in a serious condition. In a day or two, he was out again and made a complaint to Wayne Johnson, the town grand juror, but he referred the preacher to the state's attorney at Bethel. Nothing was done about it. After that, John Harrison was afraid to stay in his home alone. He moved in with a neighbor, not far up the road, and he took most of his furniture with him, according to the article. As the story goes, he told them that he would bring the rest up the next morning, but was never seen again. A few days after, the gable ends of the Negro's house were torn out. Next, the roof was torn off. By and by, the frame was cut, and the house was finally raised to the ground, nothing but the cellar, still, and part of the floor now remaining. Other accounts say the house burned down. A follow-up article says the selectmen of Norwich started an investigation to search for the body. They poked around the remains of the house and were said to have found a Bible and a small bag. But the ground was frozen at the time. This was late January, and they couldn't dig past the cellar. Sarah Rooker from the Norwich Historical Society tried to find out if anything else came of the investigation. I looked 
for a record of his death, and there's nothing in the town records. And I looked in the select board's expense reports just to see if there was any mention, nothing. So it's not showing up in the town records at all. After that, there's no mention of John Harrison again in any newspaper articles or anywhere in the archives of the Norwich Historical Society. Up a flight of stairs in a room filled with boxes of diaries and business ledgers and photographs, my colleague Elodie Reed asked Sarah about this. So there's nothing in this entire room that records this incident? No. Not that we found. <laughs> and it's pretty well cataloged. I mean, we have a pretty good... Not having a record of what happened to John Harrison, it's not surprising. They get forgotten in terms of people who are living in a community actually knowing about it. Up until last year, Deborah Karen King was a sociology professor at Dartmouth College. She's retired now, but she's still working on the Dartmouth and Slavery Project, documenting the college's involvement with the transatlantic slave trade. And she says learning about crimes like this gives a more nuanced account of life in small-town Vermont, including for the Black people living there. The presence of African Americans in Vermont means that we not only note their presence, but also really want to recognize some of the troubling things that absolutely happened. She says some of those troubling things still show up today. Cases that sporadically make the news of racism in Vermont schools, policing, and the state house. And we kind of think, oh, they come out of the blue. And they don't come out of the blue in the sense that Vermont is still a part of those dynamics and history of the United States overall. And it also takes away the romanticization that Vermont is tolerant and accepting and all of that. And so that we shouldn't be surprised when some of the negative stuff and the bad stuff happens. And for some people, remembering stories like what happened to John Harrison, it does something else. It serves as a way to heal. I talked to Jerome Lafayette Naramore about this. He's been researching Black history in Vermont for the past 20 years, inspired by his own family's history in the Castleton area. He also runs a Facebook group dedicated to sharing stories of Black history in the state. We look for acknowledgement. We want somebody to look us in the eye and just say, man, that stuff's heavy. We get it. We see you on all of these things. But if those things are never brought to them, then how are they going to know? And then how are we all going to heal together? Back in 1897, William Eastman pleaded guilty to petty larceny. He paid $20 in fines, worth about $700 today. He got in trouble with the law again a decade later. He was charged with assault with intent to kill, but his case was eventually dismissed for lack of evidence. He died of lung disease at the age of 49. William's older brother, Albert, was also implicated in the murder. 
He had his own farm where he raised a son and stepdaughter. He died in 1947, when he was 80. Both brothers were buried at a cemetery in Sharon. The property where John Harrison lived sat vacant for almost a century, besides the occasional haying. That was until the 1980s, when a small house was built there. That's where I lived, up until last year. I recently met back up with Claudia, my old neighbor. We walked down to the bridge at my old property, above the stream where both John Harrison and I had lived. And I asked her how learning all this was sitting with her. Weirdly, I wasn't shocked as much as it felt so poignant to get the real information. Because it did feel like it was occluded. Like, hidden or not well-known, not out in the open. Yeah, there's a weird feeling to know, like, oh, there are all these rumors. And this is, this is the deal of what happened there. For her, what we think happened to John Harrison feels inseparable from his racial identity. It's impossible to say why William Eastman and others targeted him. But when he asked for protection from a threat against his life, he didn't get any. Claudia says she's glad she knows what happened. It reminded her of a trip she took as a young woman to the Dachau concentration camp in southern Germany. It's like those horrible things. It's really important to witness and honor. And I would say that about this. Maybe there were no witnesses then, except for William Eastman, but like we can witness and honor John Harrison, the violence that happened, the racism that didn't provide him protection. We can be like the witness for that. Claudia still wants to do more to honor John Harrison's life. Right now, she's just not sure what that should look like. For Vermont Public, I'm Lexi Krupp. Thank you for listening. This story was reported, produced, and mixed by me, Lexi Krupp. Editing by Brittany Patterson with help from Myra Flint. Music by Blue Dot Sessions. A special thank you to Elise Guyette, Amy Howe, the Norwich Town Clerk's Office, the Vermont State Archives, Alan Berelzheimer, Kenya Lazuli, Mia Schultz, and Miriam Wood. Also thanks to Elodie Reed, Josh Crane, Sabine Pooks, Corey Doxer, and Mike Doherty. You can see lots of historical documents and photos on our website, vermontpublic.org. And if you appreciate storytelling like this, share it with a friend. Thank you. Thank you.